1: come.
2: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
3: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Inside the Museums, infinity goes up on trial.
0: I'm Jonathan Strickland.
1: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of of our two-part episode about um, how to make it last forever, about the future of historical preservation and restoration, how to take the present and make it go the long haul. So if you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back and check out part one of this episode. We, uh, we do
1: make a bunch of references to things we've already said. So, you I mean, I have faith in you guys. You're pretty quick on the uptake. But, mm-hmm, yeah. you know, just just to head off any confusion.
0: Sure, but without further ado here... Is part due, Yeah, A.K.A. It belongs in a museum.
3: <laughs> All
0: right, there we go.
1: I hope that those that goes right into my rant about how things
0: <laughs> it don't, belong don't belong in museums. museums. <laughs> <laughs> Top okay. men.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, but let's run back to the past a little bit more. Okay, in fact, let's run farther back than we did with the idea of like an oil painting from the Renaissance. What about the condition of archaeological artifacts? Uh, yeah.
1: I want to pose the question, what's the future of stealing artifacts from other cultures and putting in them in your own museums? <laughs> uh, okay. I'm sure it'll be a rich one. This. <laughs> Okay, this, uh, this is mostly a cheeky Indiana Jones Lauren, reference. do you have an opinion? <laughs> <laughs> is it Lauren's rant time? No, no, it's not. It's okay. Well, I mean, actually it kind of is uh, because the past 150 years or so have included a whole lot of rich white people falling so much in love with another culture that they went there, bought and or just took a bunch of their stuff and then brought it back home for private or public display. Yeah. Well,
3: clearly because these rich white people realize that whatever indigenous population isn't going to take the efforts to preserve that art, they have to take it on themselves.
1: Well, and and it's not enriching anyone's culture if they just leave it there, yeah. but they can enrich the lives of other rich white people if they bring it back to their... There's oh, a little okay, commentary I'm,
3: going on, but I I'm, completely agree with it. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I, I am, in fact, now ranting, but, I, you know, so that that sucks <laughs> yeah, it <does>. um, yeah. <laughs> we we generally try not to do that anymore and there are some digital steps that are being taken to bring artifacts to interested parties without ever having to remove the pieces uh, we've talked about museums and cultural centers use of uh, virtual reality mm-hmm. and and a lot of organizations like that are hosting as many of their or as much of their collections online as possible and in really high quality photographs uh, for free but, Seeing an image of a thing is not the same as seeing a thing. Yeah. Sure. That- and
0: well, I mean, one thing you can just rely on these days, hopefully to have some exchange, like if you want to see artifacts from somewhere on the other side of the world, is that plenty of museums today do exhibit exchanges. Right. Oh, there will yeah. be a traveling exhibit where something from Egypt comes to your local museum.
1: Oh, sure. And and that actually, I think, it is really that kind of inter- international cooperation is the real future of of dealing with, with artifacts and and sharing that kind of information across cultures. And it really yeah, gives me the warm hopefully. fuzzies yeah, much, every, every time I hear a story the, about it. Much better than
3: the Tomb Raider version. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, even if you leave a thing where you found it, or even if you have constructed a very careful museum exhibit in which it can travel, public visitation <laughs> presents lots of problems for artifacts because even if you're if you're a cautious tourist who's not going around like po- poking the oil paintings or or climbing on the statues
0: taking flash photography taking
1: flash photography you you're doing things like like opening doors mm-hmm. or possessing a body temperature that's higher than the air around you or or breathing uh people are lousy with breath just all the time <laughs> and and all all of these things Create fluctuations in the temperature and humidity, which we have talked about as being not good.
0: So let me guess: there's a technology that will prevent us from breathing.
3: <laughs> I actually can name quite a few. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, humans have made a lot of technologies that prevent people <laughs> no, from breathing. That's in the not long what run. you were going to say. No, it. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> but there is a project that is attempting to to solve these problems by replicating. The artwork Mm -hmm. uh, replicating specifically China's, and I'm probably going to say this wrong. I'm really sorry. Magol, I think is how you say it. Magol Caves. Uh it looks like mogao if you're if you're a dumb American, but I don't think that's how you say it anyway It's a series of four hundred and ninety two caves that were carved out of a cliff face in the Gobi desert and decorated by Buddhist monks and scholars and merchants from around three hundred to thirteen hundred c e they're i I don't have words to describe them that I can really say on air they're 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 beautiful they're really awesome um And the a a local academy called the Dunhuang Academy has teamed up with Los Angeles Getty Conservation Institute to painstakingly recreate three of these caves and and all of their painted walls and ceilings and all of their statuary and take them on international tours and exhibitions. Uh one of these brooms has been touring around Asia for a while. They're gonna hit the US for the first time in May of twenty sixteen. And it's as though you put pyramid ceilings in, like, large two-car garages and then covered them in, in amazing artwork over the course of centuries. Wow. They're They're really beautiful.
0: Well, yeah, I, I'm all in favor of that. I think that's r- really cool. Like, in fact, I've seen plenty of that already in in the more, like, uh, natural, natural history kind of setting.
1: Right, right, yeah, because dinosaur bones that you see in a museum are probably not made of dinosaur bones. No, they're, they're, probably- they're probably a... A plastic print right. of a dinosaur, book, I, uh, or or mold rather.
3: I, I'm thinking of uh, their St. John's Castle in Limerick, Ireland. Um, phenomenal! If you are interested in medieval Renaissance history, it's a fantastic museum that also tries to recreate that experience of of not just uh, you know the the castle at its height, but how it was built. And and so they actually take advantage of the ruins to tell you how that section was created because Mm -hmm. you can see the cross sections. Yeah. So, so cool, a cool thing about, uh, presenting information in a way that is combining the original work with, uh, either a virtual representation or with, uh, with, with replicas to get across the wonder Without actually damaging that original work.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, and and like with paintings, there are some pretty high tech techniques that are that are being used to to study artifacts that have been worn down over time uh, without damaging them any further. Uh, for example, some researchers out of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Missouri found that a, a scanning acoustic microscope can be used to reveal impressions in metal that have been worn invisible to the human eye uh, you know for example a, a Smith's hallmark in in polished silver or the design that was stamped into a coin uh, metal that has been worn smooth can still contain areas of compression and deformation where the stamps or the engravings were applied and and so by taking these careful acoustic scans you can a real, reveal the original patterns, and and therefore, you know, you, you can let historians know when and where and how the piece was created.
3: This is kind of like the zoom and enhance of the right. archaeological world. Yeah. yeah. It's really, I mean, I would not have never thought this would have been possible. It's pretty incredible.
0: Okay, so a lot of these things that we're discussing, though, are at least somewhat static yeah. in nature. Like, they're, they're a thing that has... You know, at some level been carved or printed or or developed in the case of film or painted, and it's supposed to stay the way it is. But what about things that are supposed to work? And I'm thinking, uh, like a machine. Yeah. What if we want to keep a machine that has working parts and and moving bits and Oof. gears?
1: But Joe, machines are never art.
0: <laughs> now I have a few Terminator friends who would take offense at that statement, but no, no, no i, I not also... say
3: that machines aren't artists. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Those those artistic cyborgs are fine.
0: Right. Right. Um, they do not deal with bad reviews very well. Uh, nope. <laughs> nope. No. 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 You should Wh-
1: never give your robot artists lasers. Nope. <laughs> bad. Yeah. Mistake number one.
0: The, the The example I'm thinking about is classic cars. Sure. I I don't know much of. it. I'm not really a car guy. I've said this on here before. <laughs> I don't. I don't know a whole lot about cars, and personally, don't care a whole lot about cars. But there are definitely people who see real artistry in like a great classic car. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. And
0: keeping a classic car restored has got to be a Somewhat different proposition from keeping a painting or a film restored.
3: Well, it's funny that you use the word restored because there are actually two different versions. There's the
0: preserved. Oh, yeah, yeah. Preserved or restored. Yeah, whatever it means to keep that car looking and working like it did when it was new.
3: Right. So uh, I had a brief conversation. With uh, Scott Benjamin, who is one of the hosts of Car Stuff, an amazing podcast uh, made out of uh, House to works, great show, and Scott is is an encyclopedia of auto knowledge. Uh, so, and a
0: super great guy, and
3: yeah, just a genuinely awesome guy.
1: I would I would posit that in fact, in this office, he's the best of all of us.
3: I'm never ever going to give anyone that title over myself, <laughs> but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, so I can't. I...
1: No, no, that's,
3: that's fair. No, it's capable. true. He's the
0: second best. Definitely. There you go.
3: Yeah. So I talked with him and, and really there are two, two methods of, uh, kind of two philosophies you might say when it comes to keeping classic cars in really good condition. And sometimes it just depends upon the condition of the car when you take possession of it. So there's restoration, and restoration is exactly what it sounds like. You are replacing original parts in the car with new parts. Those parts may be uh, brand new, as in you machine them so that they will fit uh, into the classic car in whatever capacity it was meant to. Or it may be something that you salvage from another car of that same make and model, and you've taken it off one and put it onto another because of some defect or or damage that was done to the, the car in question.
0: Uh, but this leads to a kind of philosophical problem, doesn't yeah. it? Because uh, you, you may have encountered this in a philosophy class. Yeah. Uh, so if my uncle gives me an axe of magnificent power as a gift. <laughs> which we
3: have not had in this studio for a long time.
0: Right. But I want to preserve <laughs> this axe of magnificent power, yeah. except the problem is – Uh, the handle gets damaged. Right. So then I have to replace the handle. And then a little bit later, the axe head gets damaged and I have to replace the axe head. Is it still the same axe of magnificent power if all the pieces of it are not the original pieces? Right. This is
3: the the ship of Theseus paradox Uh where the idea being if you had a ship and throughout the lifetime of that ship at some point or another, you had replaced every single element on that ship at least once, would it truly still be the same ship? Would it, would there be the spirit is of a spirit something? there spirit of a ship
1: or yeah. a car or. So, yeah,
3: think of this instead it's a Buick. All right, so you got a Buick. The Buick of Theseus. The Theseus' Buick. <laughs> this is a sweet <laughs> ride, let me tell you. <laughs> but at some point or another, you have replaced every single part of that Buick. Could it truly be the same car? And there's some. In the in the classic car collector circle who would say, no, it it doesn't mean that the restoration is bad
1: Or, or that it's not a beautiful thing or that it doesn't work well.
3: Right. It could be all of those things. It could be gorgeous. It could be it could work like a dream. It could just be an amazing example of a restored vehicle. But there are competitions where people will bring cars in to be considered for awards. And some of them are restoration competitions, where it's perfectly fine to bring a vehicle in that's been restored. And others are preservation competitions, the idea being that you have uh, used conservation and preservation techniques to keep a car in its original form, not replacing anything Usually major, you might have replaced little things like tires or something, but try to keep as many of the original parts intact as possible, uh, including things like the paint and the chrome.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And the idea being mm-hmm.
3: preserving as much of it as you possibly can. I was reading a story about a guy who had a car and he said, the funny thing is I've replaced some parts, so I couldn't enter it into the preservation uh, uh, competitions because there are too many parts that have been replaced. But I haven't replaced enough parts, so I couldn't put it into the restoration competitions oh. either. Oh. It's a really awesome-looking car, huh. but it doesn't fit in either category. Wow! And then uh, Scott pointed out that there's also another version, and this is interesting because it goes beyond preservation. It's the uh, restore uh, restore mods are what they're called modified restored vehicles. So this is where you would take an old vehicle you would restore it and you might replace, uh, something with some, you know, modern amenities, like a modern engine in an, in a classic 1930s vehicle Mm. so that it can suddenly Go a lot faster or it's much more efficient with fuel or whatever.
1: Or, um, uh, or I don't know, you put in a modern sound system yeah. or you put on giant devil horns.
3: Right. Yeah. You could just have like the, the, the various spouts that shoot out flame
1: or what if,
0: what if you just put on modern truck nuts?
3: What if you install a series <laughs> oh. of massive speakers and a guy stands in front of your vehicle and plays guitar with flame shooting out the end yeah. of it the entire time? I want that doof wagon. <laughs> So oh yeah, I mean, okay. we're big doof fans. All right. So, uh, if you want to learn more about car preservation, as well as just all sorts of car related, uh, topics, definitely check out car stuff. Cause Scott yeah. really, I mean, he knows that world inside and out and, uh, has a lot to say about this. And, and they cover all sorts of topics, including old classic car, uh, uh models and makes that aren't really,
0: you know, available these days. Okay, I got another one that's more along the lines of the film preservation. Okay. How about audio? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean,
3: when it comes to audio preservation, actually there are some things that are exactly like film. Imagine all those radio broadcasts, some of which were recorded. Uh, You know, you want to be able to preserve those. There are lots that were never recorded, so those those radio broadcasts went out, and
0: that was it. Fortunately, the Jerky Boys will always be in (laughs) historical memory.
3: Thank heaven for that. All right, so the National Recording Preservation Foundation is an organization here in the United States dedicated to preserving sound. Specifically, and this is a quote from their site, America's unparalleled radio, music, and recorded sound heritage, end quote. Uh, now it's not just about keeping them safe, but also making them available for research, education, and the simple pleasure of listening to sound. So, in other <laughs> words, like like film, it wouldn't do you any good if you just threw it in a room and didn't allow anyone to ever go in there, right? I mean, yeah, not, not stuff, much good anyway. Yeah. You're right. The stuff would exist, but without anyone to look at it, does it matter? Kind of like if we talk about the art that, if we remove it from its its place. It could ruin that art, but no one can get to that place. Does it ultimately matter? <laughs> but at any rate, uh, there's, there's again, just like I was talking about with film, it's tricky to, to preserve audio recordings for the same general reasons. You have to worry about, do you concentrate on protecting the physical media itself? So for example, tape or vinyl records or CDs or whatever it may be that the, music was stored upon, Uh, even if you do keep it in really good condition, you then also have to have the accompanying mechanical apparatus that plays it.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The most perfectly preserved CD. uh, Well, uh, let's take, for example, I don't know, the the most perfectly preserved zip disc. Okay, yeah. Is is not necessarily going to help you play your MP3s? Right.
3: Yeah. Even if you had like an entirely boss collection of music on there if there's no m- no like device to plug into your m- computer so that you can access it or the drivers necessary for your computer to be able to interact to with that device yeah. Right, sure. yeah there's a lot of stuff here right digitized music has similar issues if you digitize stuff then you have to think well sure my my various devices and computers can play this particular style of music file right now but there's no reason to assume that this particular style, like this type of file, will be the same forever. Like in, in 50 years, it may be that no one uses this particular file type anymore. So that means that you have to build in a plan. What do we do to make sure that all this digital music can be preserved? Um And that might mean transferring that file type to another file type repeatedly as things evolve. Also, all this music would be existing on some device or another, the the digital music. It's not like it would just be ones and zeros in the air. So you have to worry about that too. Like what Mm. physical devices currently are storing them and do you have backups? Do you have redundancy? Do you have a way of transferring it from – to another machine when that machine has lived out its useful life? Yeah. Uh, I mean
0: these days there's – fair amount of redundancy and how most of these types of things are stored yeah, like yeah. there are a lot of copies out there usually yeah.
3: yes especially for digital music i mean you know pirate bay alone
0: <laughs> you know that brings up another thing where i think there are two very different ways of approaching the question and mm. that is books now books is something that's going to be kind of like the issue i brought up with movies where uh, you know oh is it could you, would you say it's preserved if it only exists in a VHS copy? Mm-hmm. Uh, except it's going to be a little bit different because you can completely, entirely preserve the essence of a work of literature without a physical form at all, because the, the very idea of writing in text is, I mean, depending on like if it has original illustrations or right. something like that, but if or it's- Or some a, dependence upon right. the
3: appearance upon the page.
0: Right, mm-hmm. but if or, it's or, a,
1: or the font, because n- fonts are works of art as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the entire point of language is that it is encoding, mm-hmm. and it's so the, the content of a work of literature you can encode in language that should have the exact same value no matter where it's translated. If you use the same sequence of code. So, you know, the Iliad in uh, an ancient document should have the same literary value as the Iliad on an e-reader, but it wouldn't have exactly the same aesthetic value because books and whatever type of uh, medium you use for a work of literature, like a, a bound codex or a scroll or something like that, those things can be beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, and worth preserving all on their own. I
3: was thinking of a blind poet, but go ahead.
0: Right. So, I mean, I guess we should look at this at preserving works of literature in both forms, like the right. physical book as a sort of work of art on its own, and then, and the then also the text, which is a much easier proposition.
3: I I almost want to argue the easier part, but I'll get there. Let's talk about the physical part first. Uh, the physical part, uh, there's, there's this great... Uh, Pamphlet really from Cornell University about how to preserve books. And this was written specifically for people who have a home library. Mm -hmm. And they're concerned Mm -hmm. about, I want to keep these books in really good condition. So what do professional libraries do? You know, or, or, you know, established libraries, whether they're research or whatever, what do they do to make certain their books remain in great shape?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and the first steps are like all the other stuff we've been talking about is, is basically just controlling the temperature and humidity.
3: Yeah. You want the relative humidity to be somewhere between 30 and 60 percent. You don't want there to be so much humidity. (laughs)
1: Don't, don't read your precious books in the bathtub. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly don't read them in the shower. I've
3: gone through so many (laughs) copies of Good Omens that way. Uh, that's not even a joke. I have read, I have read and ruined multiple copies of Good Omens in the Aww. bath. The bath, uh-huh. by the way, perfect place to read Good Omens. Um, so you want between 30 and 60 percent humidity for the same reasons we talked about with the oil paintings. Uh, too high humidity, mold can form too low and then your pages can become brittle. Uh, you also want to dust the books regularly to help prevent mold from growing. Uh, since dust can contain mold spores, Cornell recommends using a vacuum with a HEPA filtration system and brush attachment. Oh, we've talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, keep the room dark. Um, you want as little light there as possible whenever – especially when you're just storing the books. You want mm-hmm. as little light in there as possible. But you certainly don't want sunlight and you want to cut down on UV radiation for the same reasons we talked about with the oil painting.
0: Now, uh, do libraries tell you that you need to be quiet because sound damages the books?
3: No, they tell you to be quiet because people are trying to
0: read. <laughs> what what kind of library are you talking about?
3: Uh well, you gotta remember I went to libraries shortly after the invention of the written word. So don't store leather books uh next to cloth or paper books. That's what Cornell suggests, because oh. if they are stored next to each other, the uh dyes in the leather can bleed out and end up staining the books on either side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh you shouldn't have your books packed in too tightly on a shelf. They can be snug, but not so but tight. But not
1: tight so that they're uh, scrunching the spines exactly. where, where the glue or the sewing mm-hmm. is contained. Uh, also, if you store your books so that the so that, so that covers of like sizes are next to each other, that will provide the most structural support it's true. for each cover.
3: Yeah. If, if it's a particularly large book, then obviously you want to, uh, to store it on uh, its flat side. Um, but as long, you want the shelf to be deep enough so it completely covers the book. One of the important things about shelves, they want, they say, you know, you want to push your books back as far against the shelf as you can so that there's an overhang that protects the books in case of any leaks of water or anything. The shelf will and take And also a little bit books, from
1: dust. Yeah.
3: Uh, as well as from dust. Uh, but you mm-hmm. want to keep them three inches away from the wall. You want it to be protected from the wall in case anything goes wrong there, hmm. um, like fire or, <laughs> or leaks. Um. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for, uh, for, like, that are really particular. They also say don't storm in cabinets because there's no airflow in cabinets. You want there to be some airflow, uh, for your books. And, uh, I was looking into, like, how are these books being preserved officially? Not just in people's homes. Like, you know, these are great tips if you want to preserve some books for future generations. Uh, but I, I thought, well, I, I have always heard about the Library of Congress and about them bringing in books and adding them to the permanent collection. But I have no idea how that works. And it's not just books. you know. They, it's everything. Everything. Yeah. Like film, music, all this sort of stuff can enter into the Library of Congress. Uh, so I looked into it and they get 12,000 items per working day submitted to them from what? various libraries and collections.
0: Wow. So obviously that can't just be every piece of content that people produce?
3: One hopes not. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, this is where we start getting a little snooty,
3: uh, or at least (laughs) you have to if you're talking about preservation, because... Ultimately, you know, before we had talked about how people had not thought of the stuff they made as being particularly worthy of preservation or it just didn't even enter into their thoughts. It wasn't even a consideration. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting to the opposite side where, all right, we want to preserve stuff. What is worthy of preservation?
0: Right. My series of uh, self-published robot erotic novels are probably not going to make it in there. Uh,
1: Well, you never know until you ask, Joe.
0: Yeah. Maybe if you change the name
3: uh, and then market it as – A brand new piece of work, it can end up becoming a big hit movie. At any rate, the, uh, the, these, these submissions are reviewed by selection officers. And the selection officers are the ones who determine which ones are, which of the submissions are added to the permanent collection and which ones are not. So there actually is a curation process. Um, as for, protecting the text and you had mentioned that you thought it was easier to protect the text than the physical thing i don't necessarily believe that's true
0: well yeah I, one thing i would think there is that you if you have people who for some reason would like to make changes to a text for mm. i don't know ideological reasons or whatever <laughs> like y- you can certainly see that happening
3: well and not even not even ideological let's just say that there is an argument among scholars about the translation of a particular text from an ancient language that's a dead language uh, to a modern language oh sure yeah and and that can end up becoming an issue so one of the things I would think is that you know the the conversion of uh, text from the written word into the digital format if you are updating it as well to translate it anytime you're doing any sort of translation or interpretation obviously you're going to be impacting that the the spirit of whatever is behind that text yeah
0: it's it's much much easier now i would say because i mean it used to be that we couldn't just make a copy of a written text that would be exactly the same every Mm -hmm. time it used to be that if you wanted a copy of a book you'd have to have it copied by hand which meant that there would almost definitely be errors introduced through the copying process now we have pretty much a hundred percent fidelity in copying but there might yeah, be questions pretty about good what, scanners, yeah, like scanners exactly. like digital scanners so right right but like yeah at the stage you're talking about there can be changes like mm-hmm. if people are talking about translations or you know arguments about what's more likely the original text maybe because of exactly this problem i just talked about mm-hmm.
3: well it's also interesting that according to uh the rand corporation which is uh a uh, they they published a, a report called Addressing the Uncertain Future of Preserving the Past. This was a paper that was published in 2007. Uh, they addressed a lot of concerns about preservation, uh, spe- specifically the conversion of text into digital formats and the preservation of digital text in general. And they said it was important but not easy to preserve that data. They actually said that digital preservation doesn't preserve the work in its original form. So – It could be that the original form is in some way intrinsically important to that work. That's the case of some works, not necessarily all of them, Mm -hmm. you could argue, at least. Uh, They also said that uh, as the medium evolves, the digital format medium evolves and digital storage evolves, you introduce the possibility that information could be corrupted as you transfer it from one format to another if it's completely uh, incompatible for whatever reason, um, or as the report says, that uh, <laughs> their repeated conversion leads to the inevitable cumulative corruption and degradation of each digital object as it is force fit into the Procustian bed of each successive digital format,
1: Ooh, uh, which we saw, for example, in the excellent film Multiplicity.
3: Ah, yes. a, A perfect example. So in case you weren't able to parse that sentence, essentially what they're saying is that each file format tends to have very specific rules that you have to follow in order to use that file format. And it could be that moving from one format to the next evolutionary format, there are rules that come into conflict. And that could Corrupt a text in some way or another in ways that we can't necessarily anticipate right now. So they said that, you know, digital is great, but it's not flawless. And we have to remember it's not flawless because that way we can perhaps uh, anticipate and prevent these problems from happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Or, or at least compensate for them when they do.
3: Yes. And uh, this kind of leads us into the last section, which is very similar. In fact, I won't spend too much time because it, it repeats so much of the information we've already said. But software and computer files and even computer hardware, because in some cases, the programs that we've used are hard coded onto circuit boards. Uh, we before we started recording the show, we were talking about uh, video games and things like the old Atari games were hard coded onto cartridges, mm-hmm. uh, so that software and hardware is all in one form. It's in fact there is no software; it's just hardware. Uh, the Atari machine had the the capability of reading that and translating that into a game that you played on your television. Um, so digital obsolescence is really what we're talking about here, and that's a real problem. Moore's law is fantastic because it means that we're getting more and more powerful machines every couple of years. But it's also terrible because it means that older machines go obsolete very quickly or relatively quickly, at least. And software that's designed for those old machines may not run on our new machines, at least not without some sort of emulator. So we end up losing stuff that was created and may still have value because our current equipment is, in a way, too good to run the old stuff
0: yeah Mm -hmm. especially i I can see this being a problem if there is not a sort of chain of continuity of interest in this thing where uh i i feel pretty confident about programs that people are always going to want to be revisiting Mm. but what about something that people used in 1970 for and then people forgot about and nobody wanted to look back into it until this year. Well, and
3: some of that's going to just be lost. Yeah. Yeah. For that very reason. Uh, I would argue that part of the reason why we're seeing this kind of attention on this area is because the people who grew up with those machines are now adults. Yeah. And they are thinking back to the stuff that they used as kids. And there's a concern of, well, look how much of this we no longer really have access to. Let's protect what's there. And make sure we preserve it and allow future generations to have access to it. So when my great grandchild wants to know how crappy E.T. the extraterrestrial game was on the Atari <laughs> 2600, he or she can experience that.
0: Do you think we'll ever reach a time when all of the copies people had will be lost and then we'll be so sorry we buried all those copies in the desert because – that would those copies were the ones we should have had for archiving purposes. We, we did <laughs> dig those back up. Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah,
3: most yeah, of them don't work anymore, last but, year, but I think. still yeah. in perfect yeah.
0: condition. No, no, <laughs> no they've got a little wear and
3: tear on them. I would say
0: uh, it's a funny coincidence that they had to come up out of a hole because isn't that basically the only thing you do in the ET game? yes yeah, you, you fall in holes, holes and yes. then climb back out of them. That is
3: an accurate representation of the majority of the gameplay.
1: Actually, just a twenty-year marketing stunt for for the style of gameplay. They were saying
3: guys one day there's going to be a documentary <laughs> about all the games we're going to make next month being buried in a pit. But in order for that to happen, we want to build in that pit gameplay element into yes. the game. Yeah. So it just critical. looks like we're incredibly prescient.
0: E.T. exoom. So
3: one of the things I looked into was the International Federation of Data Organizations. There is such a thing that has identified three main areas that we should focus on to preserve data. And they identify them as organizational infrastructure. This is all the, the people and the policies and the procedures that you put in place in order to uh, preserve information, digital information, uh, technological concerns. This would be all the equipment and software that you would need in order to access the information and data curation, which is all about managing the data through its life cycle of interest and usefulness, and also finding ways to transfer the data from one form to another if necessary. These are the three areas that have to be focused on if you wish to preserve Digital information.
0: Well, I know from experience that the that cloud storage is not necessarily the best way to keep safe your unpublished robot erotic novels (laughs) if you don't want hackers (laughs) reading them before they come to market. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, there's there's really it's not it's not a literal cloud of information that's that's hovering somewhere. It's someone else's computer. The cloud means. Somebody else's computer. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Ultimately, while, while we think of it as, oh, we can access this stuff wherever we go. Like if I, st- if I store a document on a cloud storage service. And the the big advantage is that no matter where I go, I can log into that service and get a copy of that document. It's fantastic. It doesn't have to live on my computer. But it is living on someone's computer. Mm-hmm. It's living on multiple computers if it's a good cloud service because of redundancy. Mm-hmm. If something happens to that one machine, then all the data that's on that machine would be preserved because it exists on multiple other machines as well. That's how most cloud storage works, is that if you didn't have redundancy, you wouldn't have customers for very long because the first time something goes wrong, you would lose customer data. Uh, But because it does exist on someone's machines, that does mean that eventually that machine is going to get reach the end of its useful life. The information needs to be transferred. It could also mean that the entity, the one that's providing the cloud service, could go out of business for one reason or another. Then what happens to the data? Uh, There are also other questions as well, like who owns the data? Right, that that's been one of those questions that is still unresolved. The idea: if I store something on cloud service, do I still retain ownership of it? Mm-hmm. Does the person whose computer it lives upon own it? Uh, to what extent do they you, own it? You
0: probably signed a contract saying they do. Yeah, it's
3: on the terms <laughs> of service, and you click that little button without reading it. Uh, yeah, so it's it's complicated, and it's not a guarantee, right? Like if if I sit there and think, oh. I love Facebook because all those pictures are saved forever on Facebook. I don't have to store them on my computer. I don't have to print them out and put them in books. I don't have to have them on thumb drives that are unlabeled and I'll never figure out which one has what. <laughs> I can just keep them on Facebook. What if Facebook goes out of business? It seems like it's unlikely due to how it how it's standing right now in, in the tech world. But we thought the same thing about MySpace. Yeah, You know, and that definitely has changed significantly.
1: Yeah, or things can change hands. Like, I think I felt that way about LiveJournal back in the day. Oh, yeah. And that has certainly changed.
3: Yes. So cloud storage is not necessarily a guarantee. I think, ultimately, the message we are giving is that preservation is something that is non-trivial. It requires a lot of work. And uh, we, we still think that that work is valuable that it's it's a good thing to preserve this stuff that we're we're creating it's good for us to be able to keep something in some level of permanence especially in a world where we are treating our day-to-day existence more and more as if it were disposable and there's so much stuff that we buy and then within a couple of years we Just toss it away and buy yeah. something new mm-hmm. uh, it's it's nice for us to concentrate on things that are worthy of preservation. So uh, it was really interesting to look into this. And of course, it's such a huge topic. And we covered a slice. Uh, there's so many other things we could talk about. In fact, we could go into much deeper detail on any of the ones we've covered today. Uh, and that makes me curious if you guys out there, there's something specific you would like to hear more about, or there's another topic about what will X be like in the future. Let us know. Send us a message. The email address is at stuffworks.com. or drop us a line on Twitter, Google Plus, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google Plus, we're FWThinking. At Facebook, just search FWThinking in the search bar. We'll pop up. You can leave us a message, and we will talk to you again really soon.
2: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from
3: Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time. slash iHeart.